This is deadairradio.org, broadcasting from the vault, also utilizing the power of sound and theater of the mind. I'm Corey, and we are going to be delivering visually striking images through the airwaves. We're going to be talking with members of TRIPS, T-R-P-S, the Rock Poster Society, featuring Ben Marks, also Marty Hahn. And in this interview, you will not believe your ears or your eyes. There had always been posters, right? There had always been, you know, posters saying, uh, you know, this week, Fats Domino is playing somewhere or whatever. So posters were not new, obviously. They've been around for almost 100 years at that point, since colored lithography had been popularized in the late 1800s. From the old 60s stuff, anything that's the dead, Pink Floyd, The Doors, Hendrix, especially Hendrix, anything Hendrix goes for big bucks. Michael Ferguson and uh, George Hunter were the first ones to kind of do it for a rock band in a way that kind of fit the rock band and fit their aesthetic. When you talk to George Hunter about it, uh, one of the founders of the Charlottes, and when they went up there to Virginia City, Nevada, in the summer of 65, the six-week residency at the Red Dog, George and Michael based it roughly on a early 1900s kind of circus sideshow poster. So there was really nothing psychedelic about it, but it sort of began a tradition, and it happened that you know, the old-timey poster that they had based the seed on was kind of, you know, that was their aesthetic. You know, they were they were wearing all these kind of Edwardian, Lake Victorian clothing and, and cowboy outfits and stuff. And, um, you know, they were, they were playing the part in a way. The aesthetic of that poster really fit that band at that moment. And so it wasn't too surprising that that would sort of morph into, you know, something for the bands playing at what became the Avalon Fillmore. It started out as advertising. In the 60s, in the late 60s and the early 70s, the promoters were completely on board with the idea that posters were part of a show. The promoters of the show wanted to sell tickets, so they would commission an artist to do a poster. The artist would be paid a small amount of money. In 69, the first, the fee he got from Bill Graham was a hundred bucks. Too small. That was it. No copyright, no nothing. One of the things too was the artists were doing these posters as advertising. So they were making them kind of reflect the aesthetic of the music and the generation and the people who were going to these shows, which is why you look at some of these, you know, 66, 67 posters and at first, like, is that lettering? <laughs> you have to actually walk, you know, walk up to it and look at it to read what it says. In the artist's eyes, it's like, you know, this is what we want people to do because a person who's going to come up and figure this out is the kind of person who's going to like what's being offered. And they would give you a poster as you were leaving for like the next weekends or next week's show. 
And in fact, they would try to, you know, kind of clear the place out by, you know, you, you knew that if you left early, you'd get a poster. I still have the, the poster from my first Dead show that I peeled off a telephone pole. And that's why, in some cases, the early ones are pretty scarce because they were passed around at the shows as people were leaving in whatever state of mind they were in. It's a mess. And it was probably foggy in San Francisco. And still has creosote stains on the back. And then they would get stuck up on a wall. Everywhere I lived, I pinned it up. And so, you know, now the, the corners are just, you know, all ratty. And But how many of these things survived, right? It's like one of those things from your life that just, uh, it just has meaning. You know, that's why some of the really early ones are scarce. By 68 and 69, Bill Graham was printing thousands of these things per show, and he was buying paper by the train car load. And it kind of ended there. By the late 70s, there was no kind of Fillmore and Avalon and and that kind of thing. You had promoters leasing out um, whatever other venue they could um, put as many bodies into the place as possible and so it was just like money 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 and one of the things that they weren't preoccupied with was a poster that would speak to the band's aesthetic today it's it's different it's more the bands that are commissioning the posters posters today you go to the merch table and you buy this um, basically you know sorry but it's a souvenir of the event you're right it's more of a souvenir it's merch you go if you want a poster for the show the first place you go when you walk in, you know, into the hall is the merch table, and the band will have all their stuff set up. And that doesn't mean that those souvenirs are not beautifully executed, but that's what they are. It's a weird flip of the business model. They weren't advertising in the way that the posters in the 60s were. Yeah, it's a whole different business model for the artists. Once CDs came along, it was like, okay, here's this really good format. It's clean. It's not going to skip. They're, you know, the, the quality is... Yeah, extraordinarily good. With the demise of the vinyl LP, something really got lost. But you don't get this aesthetic piece of it visually um, that you did with a record. When you bought a record album, you had a 12 by 12 graphic that went along with it. You know, often a fold out, often other things that were included, sleeves, posters, things that were inserted, you know, that, that you got with the record. So there was this this graphic thing that went along with the music. I've had some rock poster artists tell me that CDs were really the main thing that kind of created the need for a resurgence in the rock poster community. The rise of the silkscreen poster just changed everything. I mean, it had never really been screen printing. It had all been offset in the 60s and 70s. But then in the 90s, as the CDs were had kind of taken over, that's when you start to see rock poster artists um, creating these pieces for bands. It became a do-it-yourself thing. You know, I mean, there are guys who are printing in their basements for their favorite bands. And very often, this is how guys started. They, you know, they would hear their favorite band was coming to town, and they'd make a poster. And they'd go to the back door during the day and bang on the door until somebody from the band came out and look at my poster. When I was talking to Dave Schools about it, widespread panic is a big one. He said that he started paying attention to the whole to the thing when they were playing the Warfield once, and they were finishing up their last song uh, on the encore or whatever, and they noticed that people were like, you know, heading for the door like immediately. 
and they couldn't figure out what was going on. They realized it was because they were passing out the poster at the end of the show. A lot of the spreadheads are just, you know, huge poster nuts. And so they were like, wow, there's this whole thing here. I think that Panic, they've been very, very good about giving a lot of oppor uh, a lot of opportunity to a lot of different artists. Literally, it's a craft type thing that you could do at home if you wanted. With screen printing, you have, you know, a different screen for all the different layers. And, and these days, the artists are usually doing those layers in Adobe Photoshop or something like that. And they're, so they'll say, here's my red layer and it's gonna be this much of the image. And um, you know, I'm gonna use a transparent ink so these two layers work together well. So in a way, the screen printing is kind of a natural follow-up to the offset tradition. All the stuff in the 60s were typically four-color offset printing was around, but it was really expensive. Most of the printers at that time were using offset printing where you did one color at a time. So you would print a plate for the, the blue, you'd print a plate for the red, etc. And then sometimes you would use colors that when you printed one color on another, it would it, they'd be transparent inks and they'd you know, give you a, a, a third, that sort of thing. Offset gives you, you can do like a, a, a photograph basically. And um, you take a photograph of a piece of artwork, break it into negative, a negative and its component color parts and print that up. And then you can, you can print something that almost looks photographic. Whereas with screen printing, it's much more graphic. It's, um, it's, it's more mechanical um, in, a, in a really cool way, I think. Sky's the limit. Styles vary too. Some guys are more like, they're pen and ink guys, you know, il illustrators. They can draw like nobody's business. And there are other guys who are just crafting something visually that, that uh, you know, just really pops the eyes. One of my favorite posters is, and I'm gonna not remember the number. He's referencing BG number 56, a concert at the Winterland Fillmore Auditorium, March 24th through the 26th, 1967. It's a Wes Wilson poster for a Moby Grape show. It's done by a, a technique called split fountain, where when you're running the press, you, you basically put three different colors up at the top and let the thing run and so you get these kind of um, bleeds of color that go through. When they did that poster, they were the, the way they would lay them out is they would do the poster and then along the right edge, I think it is, they would have uh, three postcards, which are smaller versions of the poster that would, on the back, they would either have, you know, mailing information or, um, you know, place stamp here, or things like that. And so with that one, you, you get some of those Moby Grape posters by Wes Wilson, and some of the cards are mostly blue, other cards are mostly, you know, kind of pink, and other cards are mostly red. And it's because of where those cards were positioned on the sheet when it was printed, and where the ink was positioned at the top of the sheet as it ran through the press. And so the poster will have this kind of gradation to it, but the cards are predominantly one color or another. And again, it, it has to do with where they were 
um, physically on the sheet when they were printed before the sheet was cut into the poster and then the, the postcards. Um, so that particular poster, plus I love the image, it's this kind of Pacific Northwest totem pole mass kind of face that's also got a lot of psychedelic Viennese secessionist lettering on it, which you wouldn't think would work together, but it really does. I, I just think that's a brilliant piece. And, and it's not particularly, in the scheme of things, you can get a real nice one in really good shape for not a lot of money, you know, like 100 to $200 tops. But I, thought, I always thought that that was one of Wes's most interesting pieces. And the bands and the artists were often friends, you know, Rick Griffin and, and Mouse and with the Dead, say. So, you know, when the Dead went to Rick Griffin for an album cover, he understood. Kelly and Mouse and Moscoso and Wilson and Griffin. Members of the Big Five. You know, they were all doing this work at the same time. And then they also, they were in an exhibition together in 67, which kind of codified them as a group of artists. Rick Griffin and Kelly and Stanley Mouse and Wes Wilson, Victor Moscoso. It's not like they were the only games in town, but they were definitely the, you know, they were definitely the, the had the highest output and they were the most, beyond the output, they were the most influential stylistically. I think a lot of people who came after them learned a lot from um, what, what those artists were doing. David Singer, Lee Conklin, Randy Tootin. Murray Tepper was doing work at that time. Bonnie McLean was doing work at that time. Greg Irons was doing work at that time. There were a few other f folks as well. The big five of today, well... <laughs> I mean, I don't want to leave anybody up. Typically, the, we have kind of a big three at our show, which doesn't mean the big three by, by any means. But with Emic and Chuck Sperry and Mark Spusta, those guys get a lot of attention. For In terms of some of the younger contemporary artists, um, Chuck Sperry and Emic and Mark Spusta. And I am the current president of TRIPS. And I'm also on the board of the Rock Poster Society. TRIPS is the Rock Poster Society. We do two shows a year. Every summer we do a, an artist-only show where we don't charge the artists for their table space or anything like that. It's completely free to them and we pay for the space. So we do the artist show in the summer and then in the fall we do our big show. The big fall show is the centerpiece. Where um, it's not just artists but it's also dealers and auctioneers and such. It's become a, you know, a, a real destination thing. We've built relationships with people all over the country and a lot of other dealers as well. Major dealers will be in there and you know, some, some of these guys will come in and they'll have a display where you're, you know, you're looking at a row of 10 or 12 posters and each one of them you know, sells for four to five figures. We also have a, a poster that we produce. Um, at every one of the, uh, the fall shows, we, we commission you know, from a top artist a limited edition poster. And every year a different artist will do the poster they do it for us for free, and um, we pay for the production of it. And then all the proceeds for that poster 
go to our Artists Relief Trust. And all the proceeds of it go into this Artist Relief Trust, which is, you know, basically a set-aside fund. And the Artist Relief Trust is basically when we hear that there's a uh, rock poster artist out there who could use a helping hand, we just send them a check. And so there's not even a application process or anything like that. It's just kind of much more organic and it's little word of word of mouth and and you know usually we'll hear that somebody's been having a a rough patch with some health or they've you know had a rough patch with the circumstances in their life and some crisis or need and we can't send them enough money to completely change their lives but we can send them a few hundred bucks or a thousand bucks or whatever it is the fans are facilitating it and the artists are doing something for their fellow artists. It's a community bonding thing. You know, make a difference for a short period of time, hopefully. You know, really important, too, is it, it, it really can only be done in San Francisco because it's, it's, uh, it's got such a history and, and all the old guys are still there. And then, the, you know, some of the best of the younger guys, too. I mean, we have people waiting in line you know, all night to get whatever Spusta and Sperry and Amec and, you know, a few other artists are going to be bringing that day because whatever they bring will be gone within however long it takes them to sell it. To the point where we have to do a lottery system at the door and, and, and give people numbers as they come into the hall, just in a crazy crush. But then we also have people who just kind of hear about it. And we've, you know, we've done a lot of shows and, you know, we've, we did a show a, a year or so ago and we had a lot of people coming through there who didn't really even know we were going to be there. And they would walk into this room we had set up and say, oh, man, I had a bunch of these when I was a kid. Or, oh, wow, my, old, my older sister collected these. I, I never understood what it was all about. But, you know, or, you know, yeah, I had a, a flat file full of those things under my bed. My mom threw them away when I went to college. And, for its type, it is the biggest show of its type. It's similar to you know people's stories about comic books and baseball cards, and so for a lot of people, you know, especially the early stuff, it was kind of growing up for them. It was a part of growing up, and I think the baseball card, comic book analogy is pretty appropriate. I mean, they were they were just sort of attracted to it for reasons that we as kids are attracted to whatever we're attracted to. I don't know about you, but, you know, th those sorts of impressions early in one's life, you know, they, they've stuck with me. You know, we feel like it's so important to keep doing these shows because it just it just brings everybody together from everywhere. And especially the artists who all come in and hang out with each other, talk about their work, inspiration, uh, a printing technique. Our hope is that, you know, artists will go back to their studio the next week and just be inspired to do something because of a conversation they had.